Harris, 98. That might oh, this could be it. One. He turns, comes back for the second. Can he get his hundred? And he does, Bryce Street. Wonderfully played, Bryce Street. Brings up his hundred. The kids are happy. The Bulls are happy. And the Bryce Street is happy. Yeah, good on him. Well played, Bryce Street. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 14 of Aussie Talks. And today, well, it's a bit of a different episode because I'm joined by a man who plays Sheffield Shield cricket for Queensland, is a member of the Australia A team, currently holds a record for the biggest seconds 11 score in Australian history, and in my eyes is a future Australian test opener. Bryce Street, welcome to Aussie Talks, mate. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. How you going? Very good. Very good. So uh, basically, I'll get started with just a question on how did you start with cricket? Was you sort of like a gun from the start with rep teams and that sort of stuff, or did you sort of mature a little bit later than uh, most individuals? Um, oh, so I got into cricket um, just by watching it, really, watching it on the TV, and then instead of playing, I was crap. <laughs> Um, and then I think I played my first full season and then, um, I was starting to get into hardball cricket and then I was like, I was like, oh, I really love this game and I want to be really good at it. And so my dad like started properly coaching me and, um, like helping me and whatnot. So I'd say by the time I was like 10 or 11, like I, I was already, better than my average player in my age group. Yep. So, like, I started getting noticed at that point. But, yeah, there was a couple of years there where I, I really couldn't hit the ball. So it was a rough beginning, but we got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of people out there, younger year, younger years of playing cricket. They uh, just have a swing and hope for the best. So yeah. were you always it's a little a- bit of fun when you're younger. Exactly. So were you sort of a, a batsman from the start? I know that recently, especially when you've been playing overseas, that bowling's been a bit more of your aspect. But for Queensland, you are playing as their their opening bat. Was you sort of a batter all the way through the, the junior ranks or was bowling a bit more of a, a focus during that time? No, I was definitely more of a bowler when I was younger. Like the batting was there, but um, I would have said I was probably more an all-rounder at the start of my career than I am now. And I probably let my bowling go from about 15 or 16 onwards. Once I stopped growing and stopped getting quicker like the rest of them, I was like, ah, this is too hard for me. I'll put that to the side. Um, so I guess the, the the remnants of the training that I did when I was younger have kind of stayed with me, but I've never like worried about improving in that regards. I've more just been concerned about staying healthy with bowling so I don't, have injuries and then miss out on batting. So yeah, that's been the more focus of my all rounder. I mean, I enjoy bowling. Yeah. Um, except when I'm getting absolutely pasted everywhere, because that's just no fun for anyone. But um, no, batting is where my heart lies, and I've always loved batting, and that's always been something that stuck with me. And that's, I mean, bowling is difficult in itself, but just the art of batting and like how you go about it, that's really been what's kept me at it. So sort of striving towards that, uh, I suppose it's more for the batting side, but that perfectionist sort of part of it, obviously a bit harder to get with the ball. Um, you know, as I play cricket myself as a leg spinner, every time you get smacked, it's uh, not a great feeling, but yeah, it's that sort of art of uh, depending on what you bowl and that that sort of keeps driving you in that way. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, you sum it up with the perfectionist term pretty well. You just want to go out there and do, like, the best that you can yourself. And, like, obviously the higher levels that you get, like, the more more difficult that becomes and the better you have to be. So, like, obviously in professional levels when everyone talks about, like, playing for Australia, like, it's like, yes, that is the ideal goal, but then it's almost like you look at it in a different frame where it's like, I want to be a player that does well at the best standard of cricket. Yeah. So then all of a sudden you're looking about just like how good can you be as a player rather than looking at it from like that materialistic perspective, I guess. Yeah, Uh, definitely. Um, Just moving on sort of next question and maybe a little bit later than your junior years of cricket um you got a rookie contract from queensland now i believe when you were only 18 was that sort of a bit of a, a star striking moment for you where you sort of realized far out i'm actually being noticed here by my state where i've grown up playing cricket um or was that sort of like okay i've achieved that goal all right what's next for me um yeah yeah i mean i i played second 11 cricket whilst i was in my final year of high school so I ended up actually missing all the practice uh, rehearsals for my graduation ceremony because I was in Perth playing and then had to turn up on the night and completely wing it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I played a couple of games and I had been involved in training around the squad for the most part of that season before I got contracted. So I kind of knew that I was being looked at in that regard and I felt that I'd done okay in grey cricket enough to impress as a young player, done well in second 11, and then obviously got the contract. And um, I was like, yeah, okay, this is like, obviously it's not the big, it's not the real deal when you only get a rookie, but like, I'm like, right, that's the next stepping stone for me. Now what's my next like goal along the way? And I mean, <laughs> like when, when you're in it at the time, you're like, oh yeah, like I'm ready for this contract. I'm ready for this contract. Looking back in hindsight at 18 years, I like, is anyone ever really for a profession? Is anyone ever really ready for a professional sporting environment at 18 years old? Who knows? I mean, like at the end of the day, you get thrown in the deep end and you sink or swim. And like, I guess that's how you find out who are the ones that are cut out to be it, who are the ones that aren't. So yeah. Um, I mean, I love my experience and being involved from a younger age gave me lots of time to be ready. And then I guess by the time I debuted for Queensland at 21, like I'd been around the system three or four years and I kind of already knew what to expect and how to prepare and had been around the squad to see how the guys who were older than me were doing it. So, yeah, having that time to, I guess, adapt to the climate that is first class cricket and professional cricket as a whole a great experience for me so yeah that exposure that you sort of received getting that rookie contract at 18 and you may have been like far out a bit out of my depth in terms of what do i do here that probably prepared you maybe a bit more for when you're then playing for uh premier sorry um state cricket through sheffield shield and that sort of stuff yeah absolutely i I think it's probably the biggest jump in not so much like standard but lifestyle like going from completely amateur cricket where guys work five days a week, train twice a week and then play on the weekends all of a sudden into being fully immersed in it as a career. And like, it's your seven day a week lifestyle. I won't say job because I don't view it that way, but it's a seven day of the week lifestyle. And like every day you're doing something towards your 
career and your work and your cricket. So yeah, that's a very big jump. And like, it took me a while to finally understand how to best, how that best looked for me. But yeah, I guess now we're in that space and it's been very, um, I'm kind of used to it and been here for, what's it now? Got seven years. Yeah. Like it's, it's a well-oiled machine for now. And I'm very lucky that I got to figure that out at 18 and 19 and not 20, 21, 22. Yeah. So those early years obviously would have provided great benefit and sort of speaking of that exposure of that, you sort of launched onto the national stage um, in the 2019, 2020 season when you scored that uh, 345 batted for nearly 10 hours as uh, as someone who struggles with the bat myself a bit, man, how the hell did you bat for nearly 10 hours? Oh, that's, that's the, that's the golden question, isn't it? I, I mean, if I knew myself, I'd do it every inning, I feel <laughs> like, but it was just, it was one of those days where like everything clicked and I, it's, uh, it's not very often that I say this, but like, it was one of those days where I felt in control of like, the game and I was like, right, whatever score I want today is the one I can have. And obviously in four-day cricket, you have the luxury of being able to bat multiple days. And we were lucky enough that we'd bowled them out on the first day already. So there was no real rush to declare to try to make the game move faster because we were already in a position of power. So, um, yeah, um, that was – I mean, it was a special day and I remember – I finished at stumps on day two and I'd gotten to my double hundred in the last ball of, or the last over of the day or close to it anyway. And then I got a message from Chris Hartley, at um, the former Queensland great wicketkeeper. Um, and he messaged me saying, well, better mate on the 200. He said, now make it 300. <laughs> and I remember actually going to bed that night and I wasn't even like, happy with the fact that I'd gotten 200. Like my mind literally just went to the next day and making 300. And it was basically just a repeat of the process from the day before and nothing really changed. And I was like, I came out the next morning, the first over and like I left all six balls and I was like, right, I'm going to set the intent for the bat that I'm for the day that I'm still here to bat for a lot more time. And that kind of, I guess, got me back into the zone that I needed to, instead of, I guess, getting carried away on yesterday's heroics and throwing it away for like 210 or 220. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, um, yeah, like you said, coming out on that that next day and just leaving it set in the intent, you sort of, well, for what I've, I've seen from your, your cricketing career so far, you've sort of got a bit of a lost art in modern-day longer formats of, of cricket. Um, your ability to absorb a lot of balls and, you know, it takes a lot for the bowlers to continually throughout the day charging in when you're just sending it, the ball back back to them and allowing it uh, yourself to stay on strike and, and soak up a lot of balls. The question I've got is with this new arrival of Bazball, as they're dubbing it in uh, in the UK, what's your thoughts on that considering what you've got now is a bit of a, a lost art in longer formats of cricket? I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it's kind of each to their own. Um, I understand that my art is not for everyone. I understand that basketball is not for everyone. God, you threw me to the net side. I reckon I'm lasting two tests, if that at best. <laughs> so I guess it it all comes it all comes down to I guess the structure that you want and how you want to play your cricket. I mean, is there is there still a place for players like me in Test cricket? Yes, I would like to hope so. 
or I would believe so. And, um, I mean, you're not going to have a team full of them, but, I mean, definitely having one or two that open the batting is not going to hurt your side. I mean, I've, I mean, I've had conversations a lot with the Queensland coaching staff about joking that any time I get big hundreds in shield cricket, we normally finish up with a draw. <laughs> but, um, I mean, having the extra day in test cricket does make a big difference. It's a whole other 90 overs of cricket that you can play out. But, yeah, I mean, obviously I've been personally working myself on not necessarily scoring quicker but just scoring more efficiently. Yeah. And um, there's been some, I guess, some very good conversations from both myself and the coaching staff and a real meeting of not necessarily uh, like the coaches just sitting there and, oh, how are you going to score quicker? But how can we help you or how do we – what does you scoring quicker look like? And it has been very receptive from both ends. And I've been really lucky that like I've had such good coaching staff to help me get through that process. Yeah, no, it, that definitely helps. And, you know, you said, you know, scoring more efficiently, efficiently, you don't want to go away from what you know so much. Um, and that obviously um, wanting to get into the test side and future, that's the way you could probably get in um, from that. So, uh, on to the next question. So you've made your debut at first class level uh, in the 1920 season. And that year you also took home the Queensland Academy of Sport Player of the Year Award. How much importance do you put on those individual awards with cricket being such a team orientated uh, thing? I think, oh, I mean, it's it varies in this. At the end of the day, the end result that matters the most in cricket is winning. I've had days where I've scored losing hundreds and days where I've scored winning ducks. I can confirm the winning duck 50% of the time will feel better. If you've absolutely built the pants off them in a hundred and you still lose, yeah, like the individual success is great. But like at the end of the day, losing leaves a sour taste in your mouth. So, I mean, in like when you have a winning season and you are feeling like you are strongly contributing in your role to that being a winning season. Having that acknowledgement is then I feel like vital. But at the end of the day, like if you're in a team that's not performing then and you're getting that individual, I guess, acclaim, then it's like, well, it's great, but I want to be doing more because the team is not winning and then hence people in the side need to be doing more. So I think, I, I, I mean – Success, I mean, team success sets the platform for individual success to shine. I mean, you look back at history and guys who perform strongly in winning sides are more famously renowned than um, losing efforts. I I think the perfect example that we talk about is Ben Stokes' 100 in the 2019 Ashes. The classic one, uh, That'll yep. be a 100 that goes down in folklore history. And I, what, I mean, I don't remember his rough score, but what was it, 100? 140 or something like that. It was Yeah, 140. Like, you look back at how many test 140s there have been throughout the history of test cricket, but that one will forever stick out for its significance in A, the series, and B, the game, and what it actually meant for that series. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely that. And speaking of that, Stokes hundred, that's probably the greatest innings I've ever seen. And you can tell that there's definitely been 140s made um, that 
less important than that and don't get remembered as yeah, much. There's, the, there's 140s and then there's that 140. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So on that theme of winning there, obviously you had the great success um, in the in 2021 of winning that Sheffield Shield uh, final for Queensland there and Manus Labashane. Don't really need to say much more about him. I think everything's been, everything's been said, but he obviously yep. made a huge 100 in that game. What is it like to sort of be around... Um, a bloke like that who can literally just turn the game on its head just through his batting and make it look so easy. Oh, I mean, I could run you through a whole train of emotions that went through me that day. Um, you could have literally given the guy like a Gatorade bottle and I'm still pretty <laughs> sure he would have made a hundred in that innings. Um, but yeah, I remember being parked at the other end and I was, I, I faced Nathan Lyon for an extended spell and like I hit him for a couple of cut shots here and there. But apart from that, I really didn't have an answer for the dude. And then I managed to get a single, I think it was off Josh Hazelwood the other end. And then Marnus got down to face Nathan Lyon and he's just gone like sweep four, reverse sweep four, sweep four, <laughs> used his feet four. And I'm like, bro, are you, you're just playing a different game to me at the moment. And I almost, I almost just wanted to sit there at the non-strikers every over and just watch. And, like, because, I, I mean, there's moments, like, when you're in time and, like, obviously something great is happening in front of you, if you don't, and you don't realise it. But he got to about 50 or 60, and I was like, oh, mate, he's batting like a wizard at the moment. I'm like, this is something seriously special, especially after watching, like, our ball was ripped through their top order for 140 and then watching him go out and, I mean, paste is a harsh word, but like put their international quality attack to the sword and like do it with ease and without giving chances. It, yeah, it was different gravy. And uh, I, I mean, I can't speak enough for how good that innings was and there are plenty of people who say the exact same thing. So it doesn't need to be repeated. But yeah, uh, that was just mesmerizing to watch, and I was like, I was like, God, I want to be that good one day. <laughs> I literally remember thinking that. I was like, okay, yeah, I got a bit of work to do, though. Yeah, number one test batsman in the world, so it's you know it's a bit to live up to. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so speaking of those sort of guys, Nathan Lyon and and Josh Hazelwood, there was now I don't know how true this was, and the media reported it. Obviously, in the Ashes series that happened in. Uh, that's just gone by a couple of uh, about eight months ago now. Uh, David Warner picked up a rib injury um, in the first test and was doubtful for the second test at the time. And your name got tossed up quite a bit after you made a hundred um, in the Australia A game. Was that ever a, a serious possibility? Did you have any chats with anyone from Cricket Australia, or was it just the media? No, I think that was just media hype. At the end of the day, like I mean. The 100 was a bit of a flash in the pan, and I think it was like a great story to run for the media for a, a guy coming from a bit left field nowhere. But at the end of the day, like, I think the the the, the right selection was always going to be us. Yeah. The man had been playing a different format of shield cricket to the rest of us for the first six games of the year, five games of the year, averaging like 60-something and – making it look quite easy consistently game in and game out. Yeah. And, like, I mean, he's open before in test cricket and obviously, yeah, there was cloud injury over Warner, but I think Usman was always going to be the next man in line to open the batting at that point. I know, I mean, I didn't really receive any communication around it and I just, I was like, okay, yeah, it's fair enough. But, yeah, I mean, I got plenty of 
I mean, it's, yeah, sorry. That's a bit of a stutter, but no, yeah. Um, he's, I mean, he was always going to be the next in line. Obviously played at the end of the series and did well. <laughs> Very well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, well-deserving, and it was great to see him back in the test side, I guess, where he probably belongs to finish his career as well. Yeah, and then he went to Pakistan and made like 200s there, so probably not yeah. a bad idea to get him back in the side. Yeah. So, yeah, on that sort of media thing, um, obviously being a, a personality or, you know, a person in cricket that they know that's, you know, played Australia A, plays overseas, you know, plays domestically, you're going to receive quite a bit of media attention. Um, and I won't specifically say what maybe has gone out in the media the last uh, couple of weeks with the run out, but I won't get into that. Um, how do you sort of maybe deal with that sort of negative press, positive press? Do you sort of read into it much or do you just sort of focus on yourself and not buy into it? I mean, sometimes I just, um, I'm a bit funny like this. Sometimes I just love reading negative press for a laugh. Like at the end of the day, like everyone's entitled to their opinion and like I don't hold anyone for what they say or think about me. Everyone's allowed to have a thought on it. But I, it, at the end of the day, it's never going to affect me. Like, um, yeah, like I know there's people out there that score, say I've scored too slow or I, I'm not good enough to play test cricket. But that's okay. That's their opinion. Like at the end of the day, I'm trying to be better to play test cricket. So that's all that matters to me. And I know that I am, I have a good enough potential and I'm working hard enough to get there. So I think if you let anyone else's opinion of what they think on that issue affect you, then that's either like you then you need to, I guess, relook at yourself mentally and look at where you're at within that kind of area. But, yeah, I mean, the scrutiny for people who are a bit um, lack self-confidence and, um, I mean, it can be quite affecting. And I know there's people out there that just don't read the press at all. And, like, at the end of the day, that's probably a very good way of doing it because – regardless of whether you're doing it for a laugh, I guess, or just reading it in general, like you are reading it. So it is going to have some kind of space in your head or effect on you in that way. And it's something I'm working on improving. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, you just got to worry about what you're doing and doing it to the best of your abilities. And that's about it. You just got to kind of stay in your own bubble and try to go outside of that as little as possible. Yeah, well, that's exactly one way to approach it. I remember when I was watching that um, Amazon documentary that they did, I think they were talking to, to Peter Hanscom and he's like, when I first got to the Australian team, the media were like, oh, geez, how good's this technique? Then later on they sort of turned and I think he even said it was probably a mistake reading that. So that's, you know, he's probably shut that off and that's one way of doing it and then you've got yours. So I guess it's just whatever works for um, the person at the time. Yeah, exactly. I guess everyone deals with things different ways that work for them so yeah you just got to find what works best for you yeah definitely so we'll get on to some uh viewer questions now so i messaged a few of my mates and they have come back Mm -hmm. uh with some of these questions so robo asks what is the quickest bowler you have faced and what was that first over like okay so there's i've I've been asked this question a lot and i've now formulated the top three (laughs) and they are in no particular order Riley Meredith, Mitchell Stark, and Mark Wood. And 
I faced Mark was the I faced him when I was the youngest, so I was probably the least prepared for that. I think I was 19 playing for the QAS second 11 against an England Lions side that toured that year when the Ashes were on in. It'd be 17, wasn't it? If yeah, 17, year. 18. Yep. And yeah, I I remember I faced Tom Curran's first over from the other end. Thankful about that. Yep. And then I watched Maxie Bryant open the batting from the other end and had to face six balls from Mark Wood and it was five plays and misses. And after the fifth one, Mark Wood's like walked back past me and he's looked at me and he's like, I might bowl this one cross seam and see if he can hit it. And he nicked him off six ball and I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, that um, I got down the other end for his next over and I don't think I saw the first one. And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm ready for this. And then it, it gets even funnier at this point because then he came back for his second spell and he bowled me this short ball. And I promise you, I barely got a glimpse of it. I just saw this little red blur coming at me and I somehow managed to close my eyes and pull it into the grandstand at AB. That's a fair effort. And he, yeah, well, to be fair, I'm working with plenty of pace. So all I had to do was get something on it. And I had a short leg in at the time and he's looked at me and he said, you're a stupid idiot. Why would you do that? He's just going to bowl quicker now. (laughs) And I remember seeing, I was, I remember facing the next one. I was like, please don't break my ribs or something. I, I, I'm not ready for this. And next thing you know, I think the next one was about 5k quicker on top of that. And so, yeah, that was a very eye opening experience to what test crit would be like if I ever got there. Yep. And then, um, yeah, Stark and Meredith and Shield Cricket. That like Meredith, obviously, people watch him ramp it up in the Big Bash. And um, yeah, I'm, I can confirm his first couple of overs are about just as quick as that when he gets going. And then Starkey, I mean, yeah, that footage has made a few circles around social media of him rearranging my helmet and my shoulder and my collarbone yep. throughout that season. So yeah, that's. Um, and as a as a left arm bowler, I find it a bit more awkward when it angles into you rather than the right arm that pushes it across you in that sense. So I've had a bit more of a hard time getting out the way of that one. But um, yeah, hopefully I'll be better this season if I have to face him. Yeah, well that Mark Wood, I think he took six for in the Hobart Test, um, bowling like 150 clicks consistently. So there's no um, no shame in not seeing the ball when it's it's coming at your head. No, and obviously I don't know how much cricket you watched of his early doors test career, but that was when he was off his run-up that was like eight metres long. Yeah. And obviously he's off a long, a much longer run-up now, but literally it used to be like his run-up was like 10 steps, give that, and it's used to charge in. And, uh, yeah, it was very intimidating. I mean, to be fair, it looks even more intimidating when it's coming off 30 yards, but, yeah, yeah it's all the same, I feel like, at that point. <laughs> That's a fair effort. Only about eight meters, and he can put that much uh, power into the into the ball. Yeah, it's a lovely action. Mm. Uh, so, on our next question, as asked by Stevie, who's one of our opening batsmen at my local cricket club, he says, "What's your mindset as an opening batsman playing long formats? Is it a lot on like pre-match preparation, or is it just going out to the crease and just doing what you do?" I mean, half and half. I mean, I've got my core press processes that I guess I always stick to time in, time again, whatnot. So that always kind of stays the same. 
And then the other 50% of it is looking at my matchups and what bowlers I'm going to be facing. And it's like, right, well, where's where's this bowler going to miss? Where's this guy going to get me out? Is he going to be like around the wicket bowler? Is he going to be over the wicket bowler? Trying to get me LB, caught behind. Like, is he going to use his bumper to upset me? So, I mean, the great part about shield cricket is you're kind of playing the same, same guys year in, year out. So you start to get a pattern and a trend of what your what your what the opposition's bowling plans are to you. I mean, obviously on the downside, that means they get to bowl to you every year. So that's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the core process is always the same. You look to give yourself as much of a chance. And I guess I'm looking to hit as fewer balls in my first 20 as I can. Unless you're getting dished up proper like half volleys and you can kind of have a go at them. Yeah. But you want to be giving yourself the best chance to get through that new ball. And then once you're set and the ball gets older, then you can start to like, dictate the game on how you want to play it a bit more comfortably. Yeah, definitely. Um, another question I've got here is what extra work does it take to get to that next level um, of, you know, playing that premier cricket, playing that state level cricket? Um, is it just literally just practice and practice or is there sort of your philosophy maybe less is more in, in certain situations? No, I think when you're young, I think more is more. Like obviously, I mean – like there has to be, I guess, the term sacrifices is used a lot, but at the end of the day, I viewed it when I was younger that this is what I wanted to do with my life. So I didn't view the things that I was missing as sacrifices. They were just things I didn't do. Yeah. And like talking about like hanging out with your friends on the weekend, going to parties when you're at school. I never did any of that, but I always viewed the fact that I was playing cricket on my weekends as a as a more enjoyable way to spend my time. So yeah. I then like, hence failing me, I, I chose my priorities as, oh, right, well, I want to train because I want to do well and I want to be good. So, yeah, I mean, looking at it from that way, that was how I saw it. I mean, I think the biggest thing I can talk about in terms of chasing professional cricket is still having balance in your life. And when you're at school, you have school. Yep. So, like, you don't really understand the importance that that has is that you spend six hours a day doing something else at school, focusing on your actual academic stuff. But when you finish school, then I've seen so many people just try to do cricket 24-7, seven days a week. And, like, if you're not doing well at that point, it just consumes you mentally. Like It, yeah. it chews you up and spits you out. It's a hard sport. So, I mean, I study at university now. So I'm doing a bachelor of business and I get to enjoy like doing that one day a week where I get to sit down with my laptop and my books and focus on something else that isn't my lifestyle and my career. Yep. And I think that's really helped me get to like another level of mental, I guess, mental com- comfortableness, <laughs> mental like comfort. Yeah, that's yep. a new word for you. Mental comfort, which has then taken my on-game feel to another level because I'm a lot more relaxed and less stressed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's having that balance, I suppose, that when you you know become a professional athlete like that, you need that uh, time away as well, which is what you've got through that um, university yeah. study. Um, now, I've got another one here. So I'm not I'm, – I'm not sure on this one. Have you sort of any suffered any injury setbacks um, throughout your career? And if so, how have you sort of overcome that if you've actually suffered any at all? No, no, I really can't say I've had an injury that's kind of put me out of cricket for a long time. I've been very lucky in that regard. Yep, touch wood. Yep. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, as I spoke about with the bowling, my aim is to 
bowl and be able to keep myself on the park bat. Don't want to be getting stretch fractures, be out of grip for nine months as a batsman who bowls. Yeah. So, but yeah, managed to keep it that way. I guess I've looked after my body well in that regard. Like obviously people just see the fact that I haven't been injured, but they also don't see the work you put into recoveries after training and games and what you eat, stretching and all that stuff. So it pays dividends to, I guess, have that couple of one percenters away from the actual training aspect of it as well. Because at the end of the day, if you're not healthy, you can't play the cricket that you've trained so hard to get ready for. So, yeah, no, I guess that that's – I don't really have an answer for you about yeah. the injuries, but, yeah, that's my aspect of it. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely I touched wood as well. No injuries um, in the future Thank for you. that. So um, one last viewer question, then we'll get into your big call. Um, so the last question is for your Sheffield Shield final, obviously you talked before about your sort of pre-match um, sort of theory behind it and what you do, but did that change at all for that such a big game or were you actually able to keep your nerves relatively calm? No, I mean, I was lucky in that we had a, a, a team that had basically already been to a couple of Shield finals before that. So I was able to tap into that and kind of ask a few questions. And at the end of the day, we sat down and it's like, guys, it is still just another game of cricket. Like we've been playing this all season. We're just adding an extra day onto it and we're playing a reasonably good team. That's about all that changes. So in terms of that, how it was uh, put in perspective to us and by the elder players in our side, like that helped to kind of keep it simple. And then, yeah, then it was just about rinsing and repeating. And obviously it means more and like you, I guess that that's the game that you want to win, but I guess like you don't want to put any more importance or stress onto the result of that because then all of a sudden they can be like trying too hard to get it right. And that kind of makes it worse. And sometimes, as I, as you would be well aware from your own sporting experiences, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, on that, so that's all the questions I've got prepared. And I've noticed that because I didn't pay for the Zoom Pro, there's only four minutes until this whole meeting. Oh, we've goes. timed it perfectly. Yeah, so we've timed it well. So regular listeners of the podcast know that I've got my usual Jordan's big call. But since we've got a guest on today, I reckon I'd reserve that right to the guests. So Bryce, do we have a big call? Um, I'm going to base this one on uh, the mighty NBA. So I can see the Michael Jordan. No, is it a Kobe Bryant? Kobe Bryant one there. Yes. I know it's Sorry. a bit fuzzy, I saw the yeah. two, but I couldn't see if it was a three or a four. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the Kobe Bryant poster in the background, I'm going to make my big call that if their roster stays completely healthy, the Los Angeles Clippers will win the 2022-23 NBA championship. There we go. The team that has had a unfortunate legacy of failure for about 30, 40 years. Um, too many years. Too many years. Um, that is the big call there from Bryce Street. So we'll check in on that um, in, what, eight months' time when the April. season ends. <laughs> in April. And uh, we'll, we'll and see what happens. And probably June and July when the finals are on. Yeah, and we'll see how they go. If they stay healthy, they, they could be all right with Kawhi and Paul Georgia. Yeah. I'll give you that. And John um, Wall. Yeah, and John well. Wall, exactly. If you can get back to his old self, that will definitely add another piece to the puzzle. Yeah. All right. That is basically all we have covered here today. I want to thank you, Bryce, for taking time out of your Sunday evening to have a chat to me here on Aussie Talks. It was absolutely brilliant having a chat to you, mate. Covered a lot of things, and this went for much longer than I thought, which was brilliant. 
Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I hope I was able to impart some wisdom onto the listeners today and hopefully give them a laugh or two along the way. 100%. I'm sure we achieved that. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in and uh, I'll see you next time on Aussie Talks. 